Hello, everyone. This is Marty Lockman. Welcome back for another great season at Bighorn. The weather has been great, and we have some great things in store for you in season two of the Bighorn podcast with more interesting people with extraordinary stories. Before we get started with episode one, I would like to remind everyone that the opening party is November 10th with great food, entertainment, and getting to see all your friends after the summer vacation. Then on November 11th, 12th, and 13th, we have what I believe is the most fun golf event we do all season, with the proceeds going to Bighorn Charities to give support to the employees and their families for education. We get to play with pros from the PGA Champions Tour, and you get to meet them and to meet other members and guests from our community. By being in the tournament, it includes the opening party, dinner with the pros at the steakhouse, and breakfast and lunch each day for yourself and your significant other. It's a great value for a great cause. Hope to see you there. This is the event that Lee Trevino says is the best event he goes to all year. Now, episode one. With the great help of my engineer, Jonathan, we have put together just a few of the stories and comments from season one. It highlights the twists and turns and the lessons we have learned that brought us to this place in our lives and what the future looks like for our community. Let's start with Artie Hubbard and the very start of his storied life. Well, I was born and raised in Smith Center, a town of around 1,800 people. Uh, I was the baby of eight, and all eight of the Hubbard family, four boys and four girls, uh, graduated from Smith Center High School. My parents uh, owned the local ice house as I was growing up, and this was during World War II, and I started delivering ice to home residents uh, when I was 11 years old, and the advent of the refrigerators uh, came in shortly after the war, and so my parents, uh, in addition to the ice house, then they added a little uh, restaurant. And uh, so I worked in the restaurant uh, while I was going to school. And Lee Trevino. I didn't have the, the fortunes of knowing who my dad was. I, I never had a, uh, my father had, had left uh, before I can ever remember anything. I had an older sister. And I was, we actually were born in, uh, in Rallet, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas, in kind of a sharecropper's house, four-room house, <clears throat> dirt floors, no plumbing, no electricity. And my grandfather was raising me. At the time, my grandfather was working for a farmer there. It was Tucker Farms uh, in Rallet, Texas. They did cotton. They did uh, uh, onions in the wintertime. And... Um, I was fortunate enough, my, my grandfather got a job as a grave digger in Dallas uh, at, at Sparkman um, uh, Cemetery, and we moved to Dallas. And I started, I moved to Dallas when I was about six years old. And the fortunate thing about it was that 
the house that we moved into was exactly the same as the house that I moved out of. Four room, uh, no electricity, uh, no plumbing. But the great thing about it is it was a golf course next door. Uh, we were out in the middle of a pasture. Uh, we had cows and there were horses and there was a big lake actually to the south of us because what a lot of people don't realize is that back in the old days when you settled in the south, that uh, the prevailing wind was always from the south. So if you found a place to build a, a home, you would actually build it on the north side of that lake simply because it was an air conditioner. Uh, the wind would come from the south, it comes over the water, and it would cool you down. I mean, in the middle of August when it was 105, you had to cover up in our house because all the, all the doors and the windows were open, uh, had screen on them. And what little education I got, I started school there when I was almost seven years old, but be, to tell you the truth, my sister was already going in Vickery, and then, and then from there, uh, my sister went on to Hillcrest, and I dropped out uh, in the eighth and uh, started working. Uh, we, we had to work. We had no income whatsoever. The most money that I ever made when I was young is I started caddying. This is why I got introduced into the game of golf and fell in love with it. I would go there. My uncle, my old, my uncle uh, which was my, my mother's brother, was actually working uh, and caddying there. And actually, I would go up there and I pick up the balls on the range and sometimes caddy for some of the guys. Uh, there were three guys that actually kept my family alive all those years because there was no money. We were not on welfare. Uh, we got no uh, assistance from anybody. Uh, we had to make it on our own. And I love them to death. I, I, they're all gone for the except for one. Three Jewish guys, believe it or not, that I caddied for. And I caddied for them every Saturday and every Sunday, and they took care of my family. That's what we bought groceries with. Uh, I'll never forget him. And now, one of the early stories from Jim Colbert. I remember uh, I woke up one morning. I was like four years old, and uh, I was just screaming. I was hurting really bad, and uh, my whole body was hurting. And my parents were scared to death, and I remember the doctor's name for some reason, Dr. Whalen, but everybody thought I had polio. And uh, so they examined me. They did all kinds of stuff. And Dr. Whalen said, no, nah, he doesn't have polio. And so they got to talking to me. And at the bottom of our street where we lived in an apartment, there was a high school and there was a football field. And apparently I had gone down there and the boys were playing football and they used me as the football. <laughs> so they beat the heck out of me. So that's my recollection of Elizabeth, New Jersey. And even some of our younger guests... Here's a little story from Brett Young. My story kind of starts with baseball, not music, you know? That was uh, the majority of my first 22 years was um, all things sports, and it looked like it was going to be a baseball career. And so um, until I hurt myself playing college baseball, I didn't really ever look at music as a, like a long-term play or, or, or even a career. Um, it was always a hobby. I grew up in the church, you know, so... It was something that everybody did, and um, and so the you know the 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 kind of Southern California play for music was when when baseball didn't pan out, I had to find something that wasn't a desk job, <laughs> and uh, and and music was the only thing I ever loved as much as baseball, and so um, I found a bunch of places that would pay me to 
sing on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. Um, and that, that seemed like the thing for me. And then after 10 years of that, I realized, you know, I, I'm the only one of my friends making a living playing music, but I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm playing other people's songs, you know? And so, uh, you know, at about the 10, 11 year point, I realized, you know, Nashville is the, is the town for songwriters and I got to go try my, my, my luck at that. And, and when I went out there to write songs for other people, I was nine months in and I got a record deal because people heard my voice on, on demos as pitches for other artists. And so, uh, you know, my story's kind of funny. I think it was a music was a happy accident. As you can see from these stories, quite often they're different, but also the same. And now we're going to talk about some of the events in their lives that not only changed their lives, but because of their involvement in Bighorn had an impact on all of us. First with Artie Hubbard. But what really saved me is uh, my fiance was a year behind me in school. And uh, so she graduated in May of 1954. And we got married the end of May of that year. In the meantime, my high school basketball coach had received a coaching job at Butler County Community College. And he offered me a scholarship to come and play basketball which really saved me from probably uh, being a derelict the rest of my life. And that's a story that certainly affected Mr. Hubbard, but now here's a story that affected all of us. So Al Davis, who owned the Raiders and was playing in L.A. at the time, we became acquainted and we reached an agreement to build a new football stadium at Hollywood Park. And... I was going to be a partner, Hollywood Park was going to be a partner in the PSLs and the suites, which is the only two things that the uh, individual owner has 100% uh, ownership of. Everything else is into their sharing of profits and everything. So we go to Denver and we meet with Pat Bolin and Christensen uh, from Carolina, Jerry Jones. They were the uh, stadium committee. And we lay out this plan. And uh, Al had a absolute fixed cost contract to build the stadium from the largest contractor in California so if it went a penny over the contract, the contractor had to pick it up. Well, it starts out, Richardson, well, you can't build that. I just built one in Charlotte, and uh, you can't build that for that amount of money in. We said, well, what difference does it make? We're, we got a contract in this. Well, it really turns out that they didn't like the idea uh, of an outsider, not an owner of the team, uh, sharing in the PSLs. I was going to do all the marketing for the PSLs and the suites, and Al was, you know, he knew he was a football man, but he was not a salesperson. 
make a long story short, uh, we have a press conference to announce uh, that he was moving at the Hollywood Park and this. And uh, the people from Oakland came down, were, had all the press at Hollywood for this big announcement. 10 o'clock press conference comes. Al doesn't, he's in the nether room. One o'clock finally comes. And uh, he comes out and announces that he had made a deal to move back to Oakland. Well, he ended up suing the NFL because they interfered in our contract and they had made lots of promises to him about Super Bowls and this. And then they just kept changing them and changing them. And so the lawyers basically said that Hollywood Parks wanted, really had the lawsuit because it was contract interference. And I was naive enough to think that I'd be able to bring another team in and do the stadium there, so I refused. I met with Chicago, I met with Buffalo, I met with Arizona. My biggest prospect, and I met with Seattle, they actually <laughs> moved their equipment down here and the NFL, 30 days they had to move back to Seattle, but anyway. Our hottest prospect was actually Tampa Bay, and I came very close to making a deal with Tampa Bay, and uh, they ended up getting a new stadium. Every one of those teams that I met with ended up using us and got their new stadium. So anyway, we were talking about it then when the Rams announced that they're going to build a new stadium at Hollywood Park. It turns out it's the exact same piece of ground, the exact same acreage where we were gonna build ours. And so the LA Times ran a story, had a picture of our old stadium that we designed. We had made a model of it and everything. And uh, so everybody said, oh, it's too bad. You know, look what you could have had. So a couple months ago or so, <laughs> my wife, Joan Dale, says to me, I just want you to realize that if you'd have built that stadium, we'd still be living in L.A., you'd still be running Hollywood Park, fighting the traffic, and we would never have experienced Bighorn and the quality of life that we've had here for the last 25 years. Another story that interested me is about turning points in a person's life. Here's some advice that Tony Agrodnik got from his dad. I called my father and I said, I told him I was thinking about leaving Bighorn and, and doing something different. And he asked why and said, you know, Mr. Hubbard just bought the club and he's building a new course and everything seems to be heading in the right direction and it could be a great opportunity. And I replied that they're uh, hiring a new golf pro and a couple of people got passed over for the position and I just didn't see myself advancing. Haha. Uh -huh. We had this conversation, and my dad asked if this new person left in a few years, do you think you would be considered for a promotion? And I said, no. And my dad responded, why? I couldn't answer the question. And there was a long pause, and my dad said, well, maybe if you'd quit screwing around, 
and conduct yourself in a manner where you'd be considered for a promotion, things may change. And he went on to say that, that I had to realize that no one's going to give me anything. I have to earn it. And until I understood this, I'm going to face this in every job that I ever had. And we hung up. And I thought about it for a number of days. And it really, really hit home. And it was a moment in my life that I'll never forget. And it changed everything for me. That next season, you know, I went in with a completely different attitude and a different mindset. I was all in. I had my A game from the moment I showed up and the moment I left each day. And I became involved in every aspect of the operation. I didn't play games. I was consistent. I had a lot of energy. And it paid off. It shows that various conversations in our life can have a huge impact on our future. Now let's hear from the various people that we've interviewed this last year about the impact that Artie Hubbard and Bighorn have had on them. Let's start with Lee Trevino. This guy is, uh, he, he is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, he's the most, un I tell people every day about him. Uh, he wrote a book called about Only Worry About Tomorrow. I've read that book three times if I've read it once. I can't put it down. And people that are listening right now, if they have not read this book, and you got a kid that's in business, or you got a kid that's going to school and is going to go to a tech business course, you need to get this book, R.D. Hubbard, Only Worry About Tomorrow. And I'll tell you something, it, and it tells you all about this guy. I first met R.D. Hubbard in Kansas when he had the Coors Distributorship. And we went there to play an exhibition in Wichita. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mickey Mantle may have been with us. I'm not sure, but I think he was. And we went there to raise money for funds and, and, and for something. And R.D. was just a sweetheart. And from there, as you well know, he went into the glass business, made a tremendous amount of money. But, but he's a visionary when it comes to, to what he did here. He did something here that's very difficult to do. And as I tell people, he's the czar here. He's the one that runs it. And I tell people all the time, I says, they said, how is it doing? I said, have you ever heard of a golf course that has trouble, that has a czar? They all are very successful because there's no committees. I said, nobody can do anything without him. And I said, this is, this is how it works. So after he did all that, I know about Hollywood Park and, and everything that he had. And Colbert was in with him. I knew it with Colbert when we were in Vegas and they were had all the golf courses. I think they had 20 or 28, mm -hmm. 26 golf courses together that they were managing. And then when they got this one, what, 94? I can't believe it. 93, 94. I don't remember who it was when they got it. And Westinghouse had actually developed this, this big one. They had the course up at the top, which I think uh, Jones maybe right. designed that. And then they decided to um, put in all the infrastructure in and then, and then um, uh, build the, the canyon down below, which I think is just one of the most gorgeous golf courses I've ever played. I love that thing. I can play it all day long. And, and you know, we came in here and then he put on the, the shootout. You know, I remember playing Tiger and, and, and Nicholas here with Sergio Garcia, uh, and it was just wonderful. And um, 
Hubbard thinks about people, what they like to have. These two golf courses, these two driving ranges, our little market that we have. I tell people we have a grocery store on site. They said, you got a what? I said, we have a grocery store. But then when I tell them we have a jewelry store in the pro shop, they go crazy. <laughs> they said, you have a jewelry store in the pro shop? I said, we do. We sell watches. We sell rings, earrings, whatever you want. And I said, uh, and I said, and we also have our own private steakhouse. We have a smaller clubhouse. I told them, I said, down at the canyons where you can get lunch or whatever you want. I said, the staff is superb. You cannot get a staff any better than that. Then all of a sudden, three years ago, four years ago, RD got the bright idea that this clubhouse wasn't sufficient for his membership. And he built something here that if people, I don't care where they're at listening to this, if you make a trip anywhere in the Palm Springs or Palm Desert or Indio, you've got to drive up here to see this place. This clubhouse is one of the most gorgeous clubhouses I have ever seen. And I've traveled a little bit and I've seen some clubhouses. And it's so functional, you know, the way that he put this thing together. Um, he asked me to come and, and, and be a member here. And he gave my family, they can come here. We come here twice, three times a year. Uh, every November, we have a huge opening to welcome everybody back uh, uh, from, uh, from the summertime. Generally around November the 10th, 12th, we have, last year we had over 1,000 people here at dinner. Then the great thing is that we bring in 20 senior players. We have the biggest pro-am you've ever seen in your life. Raise a tremendous amount of money. And we raise funds for our staff because uh, they've been off all summer and they get a little behind on payments on cars or homes or college or whatever, which is fantastic. Uh, and, then, and then the membership have all kinds of things that they do all year. And then, um, you know, it uh, starts kind of gearing down about the 15th of May. It starts gearing down a little bit and we started all over. The big problem is we enjoy ourselves so much that it goes too fast. And now some words about Mr. Hubbard from Carl Cardinelli. Well, you know, I don't know that I remember the very first meeting, but I remember some of the first meetings and maybe two in particular. One was before when he was considering whether to buy the former head pro, but a kind of a direct line to Hubbard. Uh, and I really wanted Hubbard to buy the place I won't, because I knew he, he under, I don't know that he understood everything that it could be at the time, but he saw the value in it and he had invested here and he had built his home here and his friends had built homes here. And, um, you know, he was the real deal and he could make it work. So um, I provided some financial information as to how this operates and what it could be, et cetera. And I gave it to the head pro, and he gave it to Hubbard. Hubbard could review it, and he could decide. I mean, I was, I didn't want to see Bighorn go by the wayside or what it could be. So we're meeting at um, the turn, which that's the marketplace, but before when it really was the turn. And it's Donnie I and Mr. Harvard. And so we're going through things and he's asking questions. And 
you know, he's a powerful presence and he, his questions are always on the money. And um, so we're talking and he gets a phone call. Well, the phone call is the owner of the Seattle Seahawks because this is at a time when he's trying to get a National Football League team to do something at Hollywood Park. And uh, he's just talking and conversing, and I'm going, wow, what a place or what a guy or what his life must be like. And here's one of the times that Tony Grodnick ran into Mr. Hubbard. We didn't allow any parking in the clubhouse parking lot. There was no cars. So I'm out doing my thing, and I drive into the parking lot in my blazer, and I park. And as I'm parking, Mr. Hubbard is, is driving away from the clubhouse in his golf cart. And I'm getting out of the car, and he turns around and comes toward me and says, why in the hell do you get to park here? And I look at him, and I said, because I'm in charge of parking. And he starts to turn around, and he looks back at me and says, good answer. And now... Chad McQueen and his reason for being a bighorn. I had bought a little house in Murano, in Palm Desert, little teeny house as a vacation for me and the family. My sister, who uh, had passed, has got it's been 15 years now, came over to the house one day and took Janie up and said, hey, you got to see this place called Bighorn. They went and looked, and I think it was still owned by GE back then. or Westinghouse. Westinghouse. So I came up and looked at it, and I thought, well, it's, you know, all right, but, uh, you know, hmm. So, uh, you know, Murano, and then, uh, you know, I was always in L.A., Malibu, and they sold that and built a place in La Terraza. And I was there when I got hurt. And after I got back from the hospital, I was like 136 pounds. I mean, it's just nothing. I had to learn to walk again and all that. And, Marty, I was getting bored and just enough TV and enough painkillers. I got off that and hired somebody to walk with me. You know, and the first it was to the neighbor's house and it was to the shop side. And, the, you know, so I, and I never thought I'd drive a car again. But so I was bored and working on, you know, cleaning myself out and getting getting weight back and exercising and I was on a feeding too much. I just I still had the halo in my head and uh, I wanted to get out from where we were and I was in a wheelchair still and with that thing on my head and Jeannie says well let's go to Bighorn and just take a look and uh, I said okay I sent her up to look for a house I mean I didn't know what it was all about I didn't know RD from a hole in the wall I didn't know anything about this place and Jeannie looked for a house up here and we found one and especially after I got hurt by my you know because of the weather's way better for me but my focus really has gone from LA Malibu to really here and when you get to Bighorn I mean I've lived everywhere around the world I, I could live anywhere I wanted and when I moved here the Bighorn is a family and uh, you know and a year goes by and I'm just going to I kind of dig this you know and I don't want to sound like you know, if you if Jeannie doesn't want to cook, she's had a hard day, you can call and get food to your house. Eventually, you start to know everybody, Jesus, uh, Jimmy, R.D., Daryl, Derek, uh, Tom, uh, you know, Bob, just everybody. It's a family. I stand corrected. It is a family. It's a, and it's, you know, they know what you want. It, it, so anyways, I'm a big fan of Bighorn or I would have left uh 
uh, who I, I'm on my 14th year here, if you can believe it. And I'm got, I mean, I'm based out of here now. I leave out of Palm Springs Airport, or you know, Bighorn uh, has three planes. I've only rented the Pilatus twice, but that's to get up to Monterey. But it's a nice. I mean, what other country club has that down here? And I don't golf, but uh, looking across my backyard across that <laughs> lake and the green and the mountains and just it's you know and the way you're taking care of him with my injuries having the wellness center here and uh the masseuses that know my injuries and uh, if i have a water on the knee flare-up they know what to do and so yeah uh i can't wax poetic enough about this place and you too i mean everybody i think is at a certain station in life and everybody is so good and kind and like you said a family so uh yeah i'm happy to be here There's many reasons that people have come to Bighorn, but Brett Young's was a special reason. He got married here, and here were some of his comments with he and his wife, Taylor. Very special day for us. Yeah, Um, it was like... Oh, no, that's the wrong song. Yeah, a little different than that. (laughs) It was so special. I mean, first of all, Bighorn is... I've been coming for many years, so I love it. Um, and then I grew up coming to the desert since I was little. My grandparents had a home here, and so it was kind of a home away from home for me. And then with Brett, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, he, you know, came many times to the desert. So when we were looking for venues, we instantly were like, what about Bighorn? It would be special to do it there. And of course, being in Nashville, we kind of missed this weather. So, um, so, you know, having it here was just, I mean, it was perfect. It was the most incredible setting. Um, we, let's see, Friday night, we had a little welcome party at the vault. And then... What a cool yeah, room, by the way. Yeah, which was incredible. Um, and then Saturday, we had, you know, had the ceremony and everything. And it was just, we had the ceremony on the second hole, which we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do that because of the timing of the, you know, our wedding. And I know the golf course was getting like open the course and, that day, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, the, honestly, too, the day was incredible, but the team here was just, I mean, Joe is one of a kind. And every single one of our wedding guests, and we had about 250 people, um, they just could not stop talking about how everyone from the bartenders to, you know, the waiters to everyone was just incredible. So it was special, um, really incredible moment. And then we had some awesome, awesome entertainment too. We had, we had some of our, um, musician friends come and one of our buddies, Luke Combs, uh, came and sang a song that, you know, was my request at the time, which is now currently of like, a five-week number one at Billboard, a song called "Beautiful Crazy," which wasn't even a radio single at the time, um, and yeah. he's and it's still riding out the top of the charts. So we, we uh, Gavin DeGraw came and and sang more than anyone, and and uh, Lee Bryce sang "I Don't Dance," and we had, we had a bunch of people attending the wedding that we weren't going to put on the spot, and then I, once I found out they were coming, I decided to put them on the spot anyways, and um, the, uh, you know, the venue was perfect, and the weather was perfect, and um, like Taylor said, we got to get married on the second hole, but we come back here for the reception site, and um, in the, exactly same, the same stage we we're going to play on tonight, actually. Yeah. Comes and, full uh, circle. It's fun to be back. Every time we come here, we, we, start, look, we start looking <laughs> at real estate. And now, questions that I ask each person that comes on our podcast And we're going to start with who had the greatest influence on your life. And we'll start once again with R.D. Hubbard. Well, 
probably the one that made the biggest difference and everything was Art Lankin, the original owner of Service Autoglass and Safelight. He, uh, he taught me principles of business, but more importantly, uh, how to treat your employees. You know, it gave me, when I first got the taste of entrepreneurship, there's many, many times that I had people working for me that was making more money than I was. But I was the boss, and that was the important thing. And so when I'm 21, 22 years old, I'm dealing with people in their 50s and 60s that were heads of the other glass companies and this type of thing. And uh, so I've had the experience of benefiting from those people that have been in business for a long, long time to where I was just a young person. But So Art was a major influence, and then J.R. Johnson, who gave me the opportunity uh, to build Safelight into the company it became. And I will say this, the one thing I am truly proud of is Safelight is still in existence today. They are by far the largest windshield replacement company in the United States. And uh, we started that company uh, 60 years ago. This, this year. And here's Lee Trevino. I love Mr. Hogan because I, I, I studied him a little bit and his work ethics is, is what really put me over the side for him. I mean, he practiced and practiced and practiced. Uh, uh, and, and he was not a very good player until after the war. And the reason for it is because he had the, what we call the Texas grip. He was a real strong gripper. And then I think it was Henry Pickard or one of them that put his hands on there the way they're supposed to be and told him to go home and practice like that, and then he would do okay. And uh, I, I kind of watched him. I wanted to be a lot like him. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a big influence as far as, as I was concerned. Plus, the thing about it is after I learned about him in the middle 60s, uh, Mr. Hogan, believe it or not, would have his his national salesman every time he built a golf an iron or he put a ball out he would make the guy take it over to Dallas and he would he you know Mr. Hogan Mr. Hogan never called anyone by their name yeah you can never find anyone that said he called me by my name he called you fella uh, and that's that was it hey fella how you doing you know I guess that's you don't have to remember anyone's name if you do that. But he never called anybody. But he called me the little Mexican guy in Dallas. <laughs> and he would send over clubs and balls. And he, the salesman, would take me to the practice tee and make me hit him. And I'd hit his irons into the golf ball. And then I'd give him feedback and he'd take it back. And Mr. Hogan says, I don't know if these clubs are that good or not. Take them over to the little Mexican guy in Dallas and let him hit him. That's a pretty good compliment. <laughs> 
And here's Jim Colbert. Well, you mean other than my wife, I've been married 60 years. Well, I mean, you can that's imagine. A good, that's an awfully good start right there. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, uh, well, you know me well enough that that's not the easiest 60 years you've ever been around. <laughs> you know, I have my good moments. <laughs> but, I mean, you you know, that she'd be in the top first 25 probably. Uh, well, what a great partner she's been through, oh, yeah. through everything. I mean, that's. Really, I mean. She's been so supportive, but I'm most proud of our three daughters, our grandsons, granddaughter, our great-grandsons, our great-granddaughters, because our daughters raised them, and they're all super kids. And the kids growing up, you know, our daughters are all full-grown, and now their kids are full-grown and having their own families. But it has run through our family, and I can't take any credit. It, it, it's the way Marcia brought them up. I was gone. Right. I mean, I've had a lot of fun with our grandkids, especially five grandsons. They got the caddy for me. I mean, they call every week still. And uh, But Marcia was raised the girls, and, and now they've raised their families. So when I look at our family tree, I mean – they got to be the first 25 or whatever. That's a great legacy, for sure. And here's Tony again. The the most influential person, without question, would, would have to be uh, R.D. Hubbard. You know, he's he's affected and impacted my life more than anybody. And I'm forever grateful. The opportunity he gave me at a young age when, you know, everyone was like, okay, he's pretty young there. We like him, but we'll see what happens. And I've continued to have opportunities. You know, he uh, he's a tactician, very insightful, perceptive. You know, when you talk about relevance, no one's more relevant than R.D. Hubbard. He's pragmatic, and he's a marketing genius. And, um I've learned a lot from him over the years. You know, from day one, as I said earlier, I was fascinated, you know, with how he managed people and how he manages business. You know, for 25 years, I've taken advantage of every opportunity to learn from him. Mr. Hubbard, if you're listening, I just want to say thanks for the education. And now, Carl Cardinelli. That's multiple answers. You know, it's, it's family, my father, my mother, Diane the girls, um, individuals along the way. Uh, one of my very best friends was an attorney for Bighorn. I met him a week after I got here. He's passed away about five years ago from cancer. But uh, incredible person. Um, you know, gen generational people who are here. Weintraub was, uh, he was an influence and a friend. You know, people like Dwayne Hagedon, uh, Jim Gagan. There's so many more. I mean, there are generational people here who um, have accomplished so much. And, you know, Hubbard's in the forefront of this. But they take responsibility for communities. And Hubbard, it, it, man... I just can't say enough about him. So has he been influential in my life? Massively so. Has he changed my life? Yes. 
And a question that I find so fascinating is when I ask our guests, what would they tell the 20-year-old person that they used to be today? And now first would be Lee Trevino. Today's a big difference now, big difference now. Uh, there's a, there's a, you, you have to have something to fall back on. I actually think, Marty, the only reason that I made it is I had no other place to go. I had nothing to fall back on. I had already been to where I had to fall back on, and I didn't want to go back there. And that was building golf courses and working, you know, which is nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying, but that's the only place I had to go. Kids today have to understand that they have to get an education to where they can get a job and they know they can get a job. Next, Carl Cardinelli. I would say get out there. Just do. Travel. Meet people. Have experiences. Um, take tasks on. Um, you're, especially at 20 years old, you haven't set any course in your life, really. Right? You're, not, you're not bound by it. But expose yourself to these things and do it with enthusiasm and curiosity. You know, see what this experience is all about. Experience it. And now Tony Agrodnik. It's a very simple equation to be successful. The more you produce, the more you earn, period. And it's that simple. It doesn't matter if you're a plumber, a wide receiver, or an attorney. The more you produce, the more you make. And the bottom line is that you have to make a choice at some point in your life if you want to be a producer or a non-producer, okay? And you can have a great education, and it's very important in the workforce, and it's going to open more doors and give you more opportunities. But when you get in the real world, if you don't produce, you don't produce. So... Whatever level or of whatever level you get in of the workforce you get into, you just have to make that decision. And now the question that I get asked most, and that is, what does the future hold for Bighorn? Let's start with Carl. Let's talk about Bighorn. The future of Bighorn is bright, and it's bright because of the foundation that has been laid, and it's bright because of the qualities and I don't know, almost manifesto that we all follow. And that has to do with excellence again. And it's not an intangible when it's broken down into your actions and what you try and accomplish. And here in Bighorn in particular, look, our average tenure of employee is like 11 years. But People who are in the position of exercising their discretion to make decisions have been here, have, have been nurtured, taught, mentored by Hubbard and everyone else and by their experiences and have proven themselves. You know, Bighorns, that's not going to change. Everybody is in place right now. Tony, Mike Grenier. Travis, Abel, Chef Greg Proper. All of these guys know what to do, how to do it, 
And they want nothing more than to perpetuate these qualities and to get better. No one of the group I just described, in fact, no one of anybody else I would describe as complacent. Everybody wants to continue and everyone wants to continue to get better. And we do. We talk about it every day. So Bighorn is going to continue to go in that direction because it's all in place right now. And I, I, for one, you know, it means a lot to me. And my time at Bighorn, I know, is measured. Um, and I feel just so good about the people who are in place at Bighorn right now in management. This place is just going to keep getting better. And now, Tony. You know, we're successful because we have a superior product. You know, you know no one delivers... The, the world-class facilities, the service, the lifestyle that uh, the Bighorn does. And we have to continue to raise the bar and, and continue to deliver an exceptional experience. And, you know, we're always developing new concepts and amenities and ways to better serve the community. That's just what we do. And we'll continue to do that. And, you know, there are multiple projects being discussed for the future. And if I told you, I'd have to kill you. And now, finally, R.D. Hubbard and the future. With all your accomplishments, what still drives you today? Well, I guess I don't like the alternative. And I find that if you're not staying busy, whether it's playing golf or playing gin or whatever it is, uh, you got to keep your mind active. You need to keep your body active. And uh, so it's just, I look forward to the future. I've still got one last deal in the long range planning for Bighorn, which I won't disclose to you what it is at this stage. But uh, each one of those things that we've done here at Bighorn they weren't planned like 10, 15 years or so in advance. It happened. The reason we built the spa is because we would give the people come, the husband would play golf, love the golf courses, and the wives would say, uh, well, I think we need to look around a little more in this. So I built the spa for the women. To this day, the guy doesn't get to see the golf course until they've taken a tour of all of our facilities. The women are sold before the husband ever goes out on the golf course. These were just a very few of the comments and stories from our great season one guests. And thanks again to Jonathan for helping me put together this episode and making both me and my guests uh, sound probably better than we are. You can still listen to any of these episodes that you've missed or want to revisit on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Next week, we will be starting with our guests for this season. First guest will be Jim Gagan, who from the start has been a partner and an integral part of Bighorn. I know you will find it informative and wildly entertaining as we talk to interesting people and their extraordinary stories.